Vibrations, take one. Wonder how many more times they're gonna release that bit of dialogue and archival releases. I don't care because I love it. Just the thought that somebody said good vibrations take one makes me laugh. Because yeah, it's like, okay, one take and we'll be out of here. You know, in time for dinner. It's like, no, no, no. We've had this conversation I know. many a time. And my argument was always, well, the thing is, there were many take ones during well, the recording well, of process course, of Good but, Vibrations, but it turns out, what did you find out about that? That that really was the very, very, yeah. very, very first take. Yeah. But it's just take one of many. <laughs> I don't know of any other podcast in which the hosts just jumped right into talking about what they talk about mainly as their subject matter at, right off the get-go like we just did. We just might have... Uh, because usually, usually your hosts just kind of horse around, you know, at first and screw the audience. The first five minutes are for me. But this time we we just jumped right in and started well, talking about Beach Boys isn't stuff. Isn't that why people listen to this? Well, yeah, but you expect I mean, a little you... bit of banter. You well, know. what do you want to banter about? I don't know. Life, the universe, everything. I but never read that book, so. No. No. I tried and sorry, it didn't work. And I know there are people gasping in horror over that, but... Especially because you're sorry. a Python fan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It just... Well, it's like I wear tie-dye shirts, many tie-dye shirts. Well, never more than one at a time, but still. And I'm not a Grateful Dead fan. Neither I mean, I. I, got, I have nothing against the Grateful Dead, but I just never got involved with them. I mean, maybe if I did, I'd be more into it, but... It was never something that was part of my universe, but yet people assume because I wear tie-dye, I must be a dead fan. No, no, no. Hey, I'm wearing a tie-dye right now. Yes, but you are. I'm in the same boat. I, I like the dead. I just don't love the dead, but I do admit Ripple is one of my favorite songs ever. I mean, I do have that nice cookbook. That is, that's true where you got that uh, fettuccine Alfredo recipe. Yeah, it's like uh, there there were actually two books, and I don't remember the exact title or the author's name, and I'm not going to go find out about it now. <laughs> I, they've been out of print forever, but they're probably findable, used. In fact, that's how I got them, I think. And uh, they're just uh, recipes collected from different fans, like things that people would prepare and serve in the parking lots before shows, because... There was always kind of a culture of sharing things and giving other people stuff for free and some recipes just inspired by the dead or whatever. Most of them are vegetarian, but there's a few that aren't or ones that say, hey, this is a vegetarian recipe, but if you want, throw some chicken in it or whatever. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of fun stories. So even though I'm not a dead fan, don't listen to their music, it was fun to read the recipes and the stories that went with them about the whole fan culture. And man, I love that Jim's fat, P-H-A-T, by the way, fettuccine Alfredo recipe. And especially because when you make it, you leave out the ingredients I hate. Well, you hate the, those ingredients too. It calls for what, mushrooms and peas? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about that. Oh, by the way, I'm Sean. We should introduce ourselves. And I'm Lisa. And we are your co-hosts for this podcast. You can listen to us talk about what we talk about pretty much every day. Speaking of cookbook, a topic of discussion for some time, not now, but sometime should be, what if there was a 
Beach Boys or Brian Wilson cookbook. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fact, let, let's, let's. I'm gonna write that yeah, down. Let's, let's uh, because we have talked about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is uh, episode 13, I believe. And you know, we've been. It's hard to believe we've been doing this podcast for over a year now. We have. Yeah, we only we do one episode a month. We started hmm. off, I think, with two episodes in one month simply because we had a bunch in the can. Oh, so okay. I think our official episode one was, or episode two actually happened right after Feel Flows came out. Hmm. And now here we are, just about the next month, we are going to have the Sail on Sailor box set next month. And yeah. wh- I, something I didn't really think about until just earlier today is that it seems to me that in the marketing, they are considering the vinyl version of the box set to be the main box, even though there's a six CD box. So it's almost like they're pushing. Of course, keep out in that. mind if this is anything like Feel Flows, it's not really a box because that was that was a book that had the CDs yeah. inserted inside. Well, so was Made in California. I don't know if uh, the vinyl set was actually in a box. Feel but... Flows definitely is. Okay, in, in the vinyl. Uh, I don't know about Sale on Sale. I really have absolutely no interest in the vinyl version of it. I just want the CDs myself. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get the Feel Flows vinyl after I heard people rave about it. And of course, because I'm a sucker for colored vinyl, I'm not that much of a sucker that I need So Tough and and uh, Holland Sessions on vinyl. And number two, I don't, I, I don't know where I was going with that. So forget well, number two. Well, I will say I saw in the, the little um, preview picture that we saw of... Um, what the set's going to look like. It does include the single of Mount Vernon and Fairway, but yeah. we already have that. Yeah. We've got an original one. So. Well, yeah, we, yeah, it's kind of a hybrid because when we got married and we merged our record collections together, we merged and purged. You already had a copy of Holland. I already had a copy of Holland. Yours is a promo copy, though. Yeah. So, hey, what are you going to keep, the promo or the commercial version of course you're going to keep the promo but neither of us had the promo version of mount vernon and fairway that that went with it so Mm -hmm. we have the promo holland with a Terre Haute commercial pressing of mount vernon and fairway friends let me explain something about my husband a few months ago he discovered something called discogs.com which is a website where you can catalog your records cds all kinds of things in a nice, accessible online format, which really would come in handy if you're going to say record shows, or you're going to a used record store, and you want to keep track of what you already have. It's definitely a great site, great environment. But my husband has gotten deep into the world of finding out through the run out grooves on the records, where the record was actually pressed. You have to catalog it like yeah, that yeah, because I it know. is a different entry I for know, every plant. But, but this is now a thing with a capital T where you have to actually say, it's a Terre Haute press. I don't care that it was pressed in Terre Haute, Indiana. Just play the record. I can't. I'm this recording is not, a podcast This is not episode. knowledge that I need to have in my life. And I don't know if you need to have it either. I mean, the only well, time catalog it accurately. The only time you really need to know where it was pressed is if it's the uh, butcher cover 
because then the pressing depends on what method you use to peel the cover. Assuming you're going to peel it in yeah. the first place. And also it helps <laughs> a little bit if you're looking for the reverbed version of Rubber Soul. I mean, I read something years ago about how depending on the press where the record was manufactured, you use different methods to successfully peel the cover. And one way it involves using spit. I don't want to know how they came upon that. Well, I just hope if I ever do find a butcher cover that I want to have peeled that they have found a better way to do it or that it's a it's a, from a plant that does, that uses the glue that dissolves with another substance. Okay. So, anyway, anyway, back to the Beach Boys. Back to the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah, that's right. The revolver box is coming out too even before the Ooh, anyway. Yay. <laughs> Which is going to be a box. Christmas comes early this year. Yeah. Even earlier than the sale on sailor set, anyway. Well, that we'll have enough time to absorb the revolver set yeah. before the sale on sailor set comes out. Exactly. Something I found interesting, though, only two of the so tough tracks on it are remixed. I remember Alan Boyd saying that the whole thing was going to be remixed. I don't know how what exactly happened there. I know that they said, well, we wanted it better sounding than what Stephen Moffat could have done with it, so. The only thing I could think of is because there was a lot of backlash about some of the remixes on uh, the uh, Sounds of Summer set that came out this year. And quite honestly, some of those mixes were pretty bad. Some of them were really good, but some of them were pretty bad. And there were people getting very loud about those bad ones. So maybe they kind of dialed it back on the remixing for the for the box. But it does look like an interesting set. It does have the sail on sailor writing session. I don't know if that means it's the 1971 okay, demo. Why don't we table this until we actually have it and do an episode well, where we, we discuss I it? I know, I know, but you know, we should do a little preview and we should also address a few things that we might have gotten wrong or forgotten to mention in a previous episode. Like in episode 12, we talked about various Beach Boys sites that we've visited primarily in California. Mm -hmm. One that we forgot to mention that we did a quick drive-by on. The same day we went to Beverly Glen Deli, we also went to Cantor's Deli for dinner, and they have a good matzo ball soup. I had two matzo ball soups that day. It's something else. And that's in the Fairfax district, not far from Fairfax and Third. So I said, hey, after we're done here, let's just take a little uh, drive by the uh, where help that difficult acronym health food place used to exist because we both heard that it was some kind of a farmer's market now. No, 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 no. The farmer's market, which is located at Fairfax and third is something that I don't know the history of it, but I believe it has been a part of Los Angeles for a very, very long time. I mean, it, it was originally like farmers markets in most cities before they became very fancy and built up and artisan and all of that. It was literally farmers would load up their truck, drive it into the city and sell stuff off their truck mm -hmm. for city dwellers who may not have had a good selection of farm fresh produce in their local stores. Back when grocery stores were much smaller and didn't carry as much of a variety of things. So that's how the farmer's market started. And I believe there's even there was even a little jingle or a little song about like Meet me. farmer's market. No, I don't think so. Oh. Like, I think it was something like something that kind of said, meet me at Fairfax and third. So 
in it over the years, it became, I think that may have been just like an empty lot or a parking hmm. lot or something like that. And over the years, it became something where permanent buildings were built and there are vendors who actually have storefronts in there. And I think there's restaurants and there's also still plenty of spots for farmers to drive up their, their truckload of produce and sell it right there. But it's definitely a permanent thing. And it's yeah. been around probably a pretty long time, much long, which is probably why H-E-L-P ah, okay. may have been located there because just conveniently located to the farmer's market to attract people who were going there to buy fruits and vegetables. And okay, may, it was also probably part of in the 60s when people really started getting into healthy eating and getting away from processed foods and starting a lot of the things that are talked about today in buzzwords like farm to table and all yeah. that, but which is a genuine thing. It just wasn't called it that back then. So basically what I'm taking away from this is help and the farmer's market coexisted. Most likely. Okay. Yeah. But. I mean, it may have even been, I don't know where exactly where that restaurant was located, but that may have even been on the farmer's market property. Ah, like true. one of the, like I said, I mean, we drove past there and there's a huge block of permanent stores. Seriously, it so, is freaking massive. So it may have been one of those actual restaurant storefronts, or maybe it was like across the street or something. Yeah. But yeah, it was definitely, I'm sure, part of that scene. Yeah. So you drive drive by Fairfax and Third, you're going to see this massive, huge freaking farmer's market kind of place. Yeah. And I mean, I would like to go there next time we're in LA. For I real. Mean, I mean, it was already closed by the time because uh, it's open until like eight o'clock or something. And right. I think we had already was already after that. But yeah. I mean, it does definitely look nice. And speaking of Beverly Glendelly, have a correction that you actually pointed out to me, because when we recorded episode 12, I had said that Brian Wilson's pre-wedding party that became a bachelor party was at the Beverly Glen Grill, I think it was called, which is in the same little shopping place where the Beverly Glen Deli is. You told me that was wrong. What really happened? Oh, well, I mean, it's in David Leaf's book that oh. it was um, Brian's, I think his 70th birthday party. Or was or? it David Leaf's birthday party? It was somebody's birthday party. Well, you just have to look <laughs> it up. Yeah, so. it's in the book. It's in the book. Oh, and you know, the funny thing, funny you should mention that, because that's the whole reason we're recording this episode, because David Leaf's updated book is now out for the whole world. We ordered ours from Amazon UK, because I did not want to wait till September. Yeah, yeah neither did I. It came out in the UK back in, I think, sometime in June or the yeah. end of June. Yeah, because uh, David Leaf wanted this book to coincide with Brian's 80th birthday. Mm. But in the US, he could, like, the publisher in the US couldn't do it. Yeah. But in the UK, they could. Yeah. So we, we ordered it from overseas. <laughs> yeah. Because we're like that. <laughs> yeah. And um, speaking of which, uh, we also should uh, talk about a Brianism for the month. And the one that I chose was this one. Spoken in 2007, I don't know the context. Let's have some dessert. It's on me. I have money in the bank. I'm honored to pay for your lunch. There is a reason I chose this one. We might be leaking some spoilers here for people who haven't read the book yet. 
or at least the new part of the book, I should say. I remember in particular one part in the book where uh, David was talking about how I think he said he was out to uh, he was out to lunch with Brian or dinner on several occasions with other people who expected that Brian would pay for the the meal because he's rich. And he kind of said, I don't know if that's really fair to make Brian pay for for lunch every time just because you're counting his money. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I chose that (laughs) one, because here's Brian offering to pay him. If he offers, fine. That's one thing. Yeah. There have been a number of different books, especially in more recent years. But this one definitely made the fan community sit up and take notice, I think, because for a long time, the David Leaf book was kind of, for many fans, the gold standard. Yeah. I mean, there are many people who will say, this was my first Beach Boys book. And I mean, granted, when it came out in the first edition, came out in 1978, there really weren't any, or there were very few Beach Boys books. There was, uh, I think, one that was put out in 1976 for their 15th anniversary and it was probably a fluff piece yeah i think it was more more like yeah i don't think it had a lot of real substance to it i don't i don't know if i've ever even looked at it have you i don't think so i don't i don't think i looked at any books that are older than the original beach boys in the california myth book yeah i mean there were plenty of magazine articles like David Leaf mentions how the impact that a big 1971 Rolling Stone story had on him. Um, yeah. And there it's... was, of course, uh, Goodbye Surfing, Hello God. Yeah. There was the 1976 Rolling Stone, um, The Healing of Brother Brian. Yeah, the 1971 one. Let me say that again. That's a stupid one. one no, the 1971 <laughs> article by Tom Nolan was called A California Saga. Yeah. So he kind of... Uh, <laughs> predicted. Predicted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah, so there were plenty of really good articles, but not books. Because even even my first Beach Boys book, which was uh, The Beach Boys by Byron Price, I think that only came out maybe a year or two after Beach Boys and the California Myth. Yeah, and that was a good book for what it was, but it wasn't really telling the story. Well, it was more it was more focused on the music. Right. There's a lot of uh, lyrics are quoted in it. And it doesn't really have, I have to read, I mean, I, I read that book. That was the only Beach Boys book in my town library. And I read it many, many times because it's all I had. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't looked at it in a long time. And I actually pulled it out of the bookcase to give it another look because just to refresh myself on it. But I believe it did focus more on the music. Right. But I still wanted more. And it was a number of years before I was able to get my hands on more Beach Boys books. Because, I mean, there was the Heroes and Villains book that came out in 1986, I believe. Yeah, and for the longest time, that and David Lee's book were the only two books you could get. And then 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 in the 90s, there was an explosion of Beach Boys-related and Brian-related books. But but yeah, I mean, I didn't really look at... uh, the David Leaf book until the 90s when I got involved with the online community and started learning more about what was out there. Right. Because I didn't really know people who were fans. And yeah, I didn't know the literature. Then, you know, I found out about it and you had read it already. Yes. Right. You had, your library had it. 
Yeah, and that brings me to this. I think I first truly heard of David Leaf, courtesy of the CDs that were out in 1990, because he wrote all the liner yeah. notes, and he wrote the liner notes to the Good Vibrations box. Yes. And they all said at the very end, David Leaf is the author of the Brian Wilson book, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. And I happened to work at my town's public library for seven years, and I came across a book by David Leaf every freaking day called The Beach Boys. And I, I swear it was a paperback. It was a paperback, just like California Myth. And I'm thinking, did he write another book? I need to find this other book he wrote called The Beach Boys and the California Myth, because that tells me there's something else going on there. Yeah. I did not know that it was the same book, just updated. Yeah, with the 1985 a, mm -hmm, book. Mm -hmm. so, with the pink cover. And David Leaf, if you happen to be listening... <laughs> I just, I just need to let you know, because I know this had been said in, uh, I think, some interviews and maybe even the book itself, how, how you've been kind of shocked and dismayed at how much people spent on copies mm -hmm. of the book. Because by the time the internet fan community really started going, so say mid-90s and on, both editions of the book were long out of print. Yep. And this was before we really had good internet resources to seek out used copies of books. A lot of used bookstores did not put their inventory online, and I don't even know if Amazon existed yet. It did. But it was still kind of just beginning. And I know Barnes & Noble in the late 90s actually started up like a marketplace where people could sell used copies of books and that was a godsend oh it was oh. great but it also took time to get going because yeah. again a lot of the people who owned used bookstores probably were like you know it was probably a pretty daunting task to put your whole inventory on the internet because a lot of used bookstores were run by maybe one or two people like they weren't huge operations so finding a used copy of a book was not easy. Yep. And when you had these early marketplaces and when eBay started up, people knew about the demand and were yep. putting copies of David Leaf's books up, both editions, for hundreds of dollars each. Yeah. And we were able to acquire both yeah. editions for... Like 15 bucks, I think. Well, I think the 1978 book... I think you found for like $10. Yeah, that was the first one. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And I and I, then, I, I, messaged the guy I bought it from and said, are you sure about that price? Said, yeah, that's all I want for it. And then the 1985 book. Um, Almost we, immediately after we that. We picked that up at Beetlefest. That's right, yes. And it was $15. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so David Leaf, if you're listening, we did not spend hundreds of dollars. Yeah, yeah. in book. fact, I turned around and resold the California Myth book. I, if I made a profit, it was like five bucks profit. Wait, we so still have. We have both of them? Yes. I you thought I sold the no, other one. No, you did not. We still have both oh, of God, them. Oh, God, did the guy buy it from me and I never sent it? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we still have both. Good grief, yeah. And by the way, those of you who have one of the previous editions of David's book... Uh, and you're planning to get the new version, I recommend holding on to whichever version you have. I think mainly because 
the new version of the book doesn't have the pictures that were in the previous version. Yeah, there aren't as many photos. Yeah, and I'll get back to that in a bit, but uh, there are pictures in the new book, but they're totally different. Yeah. And there's also a lot more recent photos yes, yes. that are really kind real, of nice. Yes, really good pictures. Uh, but one thing I got to say, also, if David Leaf is listening, <laughs> uh, which I hope he is, is that something that I really appreciate. I've been in other fan communities, and there's always in fan communities, you have some people who are in the inner circle or close to the inner circle, people who have more access and more knowledge, who do participate with the fans on various levels. And sometimes it's appreciated, sometimes it isn't, (laughs) depending on the attitude of said people. But I find with the Brian community, I find that there are people that we've encountered, you know, some we've even got to meet in person, like say, members of Brian's band. And then I got the same vibe with David Leaf that you have people who truly love Brian's music. And their association is not out to give them personal glory or anything like that. And there's almost like a great sense of needing to take care of Brian's work and his legacy and his reputation and just everything about him. There's a great deal of care. I don't even have to go look at it, but the 1999 tour program, Mm -hmm. David Leaf also wrote the text for that. And with that tour, there were a few shows in the winter and then the rest of the tour revved up in June we went to the show at the Beacon Theater on June 18th, 1999. And in the program, David Leaf had an essay about one of those first shows, maybe it was even the one in Chicago, and just the feeling of being there and being in the audience. And, you know, here Brian was doing a solo tour, which nobody ever thought would happen. And it but it was happening. And it ended with, and tonight, now it's your turn. And it's like, oh, man, like, dude, feels, you get it. <laughs> you yep. get it. You get us. Now, is that when he also said that Brian is kind of like Tinkerbell and that you No, have that to was my thing. That was my thing. I thought he said that. No, that was my thing huh. as a former Disney fan. <laughs> no, that was my thing that because when we saw Brian that night at the Beacon, I have never experienced a show before or since where there was so much love going from the audience to the performer. It was almost tangible. Yeah. And that's, I said, it's like, it's almost like we felt that Brian was like Tinkerbell in that we had to believe in him in order for him to exist. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't believe in him, he would disappear. Now, one thing I just want to interject here. Several times you said, David Leaf, if you're listening, I just want to say this. I specifically thought, I never said this out loud, but I specifically thought, let's not ask David to be on the, uh, a guest on at least not this episode. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is because he has been on every yeah. other freaking Yeah, really. Podcast. He's been busy. <laughs> He's been busy. So number one, I know that between that 
and his day job at UCLA. He's probably a busy guy. He'd like probably a little bit of a breather. And number two, he's probably said everything he needs to say among all those other shows. Uh, So what more could he offer for us? Having said that, if he would like to be on on this podcast, he's absolutely welcome. But that's why you're not hearing him here. And also, you know, maybe this gives us a little bit of a chance to speak a little freely. I don't know. I don't know. But thing is, I, I don't really have anything nasty to say or anything. In fact, one thing I do have to say, I think I commented on a previous episode, like several episodes back, about how David Leaf's book was very biased toward Brian. Now, as I was rereading it, now, the last time I had read a David Leaf book was probably in the 90s. It was the pink book, simply called The Beach Boys. So I decided I'm not just going to read the new parts. I'm going to reread the whole thing from start to finish. I was surprised at how really balanced it actually is. And that so was I. And that also there was things that were almost pretty critical of Brian. That's true. Like I, yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite what I remembered it to be. I mean, the problem is when you're doing anything, whether it's a book or a documentary, I mean, the problem with doing something about the Beach Boys is the story is inevitably going to take a particular trajectory. Yeah. It's inevitable that you start out talking about the band itself, and it eventually is going to branch off into being about Brian. Yeah. Because it's not, I mean, we always bring up the Beatles, but I mean, the Beatles are a perfect example of kind of an alternate example where you have four men who were pretty much equal players in this band, that they all had their own individual stories. They all had their own lives and their own interests and their own side projects, but then they also came together and that they had a very democratic way of doing things yeah. that they all had to agree. I mean, it was it was very balanced. And you do not have that with the Beach Boys story. There is no balance. Yeah. It's very, very skewed in a particular direction. Now, could it be told differently? Perhaps. Could you have Al being the main player? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's going to take a particular direction because you're going to have Beach Boys, Beach Boys, Beach Boys. But then it's Brian. Brian has a nervous breakdown. Brian leaves the road. Brian takes LSD, makes all this great music, makes pet sounds, good vibrations, smile. Then that blows up and... Then you can talk about the other guys for a little while, but then you have Dennis and Charles Manson and then, and then, you know, and then 1976 happens and Mike Love puts on gold sequins and everything is just not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, and then you have Brian and Landy and it's just, I mean, the story is always going to inevitably come back to Brian because that's a story. I mean, you know, not to put down Al, Al is a great guy. And I mean, we've really enjoyed seeing him perform with Brian and in his solo shows. But the thing is, with Al, he's a guy who has played rhythm guitar and has done some writing and producing of his own. But I mean, he's a pretty 
straightforward, straight-laced guy who, you know, married and has raised a couple kids and lives in Big Sur. And I mean, it's a nice story, but there's nothing weird about it. Like he's a guy who gets up in the morning and puts on clothes and goes out and plays a guitar. And that's about it. Like, like he, there's nothing wacky. (laughs) Unless he's not telling us something. Yeah. but, (laughs) But I mean, it's like, Brian is where the story is. Dennis is where the story is. Yeah. And and Mike too to a well, certain degree too. We I mean once we read his book, yeah. And I mean if Carl had ever written his own book, there may have been a lot of stuff that we never knew there either. I mean, I didn't know until a couple of years ago that that's Carl singing on Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Like, oh. once you know, you can never yeah. unhear oh, yeah. it. But I had listened to that song for years and never picked out Carl's yeah, voice. And despite having all these Beach Boys books in our collection that I have read from cover to cover, I didn't know until a couple of years ago that Carl was an ordained minister. Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't one of your mainstream Christianity sects, and I don't but think still. It, and I don't know. think it was one of those, like, pay $20. No. Like, to the, uh, was it the Universal Life Church, where you can, like perform somebody's wedding yeah you can do like an emergency wedding (laughs) or something but yeah and something else that i kind of wanted to touch on regarding the pictures i said that if you have one of the older editions of the book keep it if for no other reason for the pictures before we recorded today i did a quick flip through of the 1980 the the pink edition that's simply called the Beach Boys. Yeah, I didn't know if it was eighty five or eighty. I know it covered the eighty six album because or the eighty five album because David okay. clearly did not like male ego. The but fact is, you I don't was, even have to look at the copyright yeah. to know that it's nineteen eighty five by that cover. With the, it's so nineteen eighty five. Yep. But I was flipping through it, and it occurred to me why I remembered that book to be so biased toward Brian. After I read these books from cover to cover, I don't quite often go back and reread them from cover to cover. I'll just flip through them really quickly just to look something up. And when you flip through something like that that's loaded with pictures, you're going to gravitate toward the pictures and see some captions in there that uh, may or may not have been written by the author. And a lot of the captions do seem to be kind of implying at least the way i see it personally if i'm misinterpreting it i apologize but the way i see it a lot of the captions are very brian good everybody else don't trust them but that's the way i saw it at least i think that might be why i i kind of falsely remembered the book to be very brian biased and you know when you think about it i mean i worked in publishing for a time well so did you Mm -hmm. and I know in my experience, photo captions were not necessarily written by the author. I wrote photo captions. Yeah, I mean, photo captions were only written by the author if the author specifically wanted something said. Yeah. I mean, usually they were written just like how headlines, chapter titles, things like that are usually written by editorial people. So that's the thing. David Leaf may not have had anything to do with those photo captions. And it may have also been just kind of the, maybe that was part of the selling point of the book at the time. I don't know. I mean, that was 1985 was when the Beach Boys put out an album. Brian was involved with it. Yeah. And he had been through the second round of Landy. 
He was doing more public appearances. He looked fantastic. And that was before really the Landy stuff went completely overboard. Yeah. I mean, that was probably kind of the sweet spot where Brian was healthier and looking good, feeling good, making music, being involved with the Beach Boys. And maybe that was just part of like an editorial choice to boost him up. I don't know. But something that is very interesting about this book, and I don't think this is really a spoiler, is that the book presents the text of the 1978 book, and then the 1985 edition. Yeah, the additional material, and then the 2022 material. And at first, I was a little bit like, okay, wait a minute, why why is it like this? In thinking that it would have been better to have just had a straight rewritten text, like, here's this story from a 2022 perspective, or to have something kind of annotated with footnotes and other material to kind of, if David Leaf said something in 1978, if there's a note being, you know, like 2022 note, this actually happened or this didn't happen. or But as I kept reading, I realized what the method to the madness was that where David Leaf actually explains how he wrote the first book. And I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to spoil that. But it says he's like, here's where I was when I wrote the book in 1978. And then here's where I was in 1985. And then in 2022, in that part, there's a lot more about his not even a fly on the wall. He was like the fly right there on the table. (laughs) I mean, where he he's like, here's stuff that I can share being part of like very much the inner circle and telling telling stories that we never ever would have heard otherwise and yeah. it's really very quite interesting and provides it's not like it tells everything about what Brian has done since 1985 but from David Leaf's perspective there's a great wealth of stories and further insight into Brian that I really appreciated. The way I see it is the 2022 portion, that last portion of the book has a completely different vibe from everything else in the book that was not from this year, because it seems to me that that last part, those, the new edition, which is a pretty big section, by the way, it's not just a quick addendum. It's several chapters long. It's almost as if it's his diary of his mm-hmm. life with Brian, yeah. as opposed to telling the Brian story. Yeah. And I kind of like how he approached that, too. And something I noticed is that in the new parts, without spoiling anything, it looks like David was very careful about name dropping, because there are certain things in there. Like, there's one particular story that I read that I had heard from many other people who were there. In which they were saying, okay, it involved this person, this person, this person. David's version basically says, I'm not going to say who inv- who was involved <laughs> here. Yeah. And uh, I got to applaud him for that, for being, for being and I restrained. Think, and I think <laughs> there's also a certain name. Not being, re- I, they, like, not being restrained. I mean, for practicing restraint. <laughs> I think there's also a certain name that is omitted deliberately. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> to, I d- to avoid possible 
litigation. Yeah, and I and I, and I, I do like how at one point and you if, mentioned and how. And if you don't know, if you yeah. don't know who I'm talking about, then you just. See, I don't. I don't think he here? really has anything to worry about. But at the same time, I don't blame him. No, no, you got to be careful. And I do remember he did mention about how somewhat in somewhat recent times the two of them crossed paths yeah. and they yeah. kind of very oh, yeah. politely but kind of restrained, you know, like. Hi, you know. But hi, how are you? <laughs> but there's some, there's some, some really great stories. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil anything, but the uh, the last part of the book shares some things we had never heard yes. from anybody, not through any fan lore or anything like that. So it's uh, definitely it's, appreciated. And some of it isn't even recent, but dates back to say the 70s too. Yeah. Because, um, again, not to spoil anything, so I'll be as vague as I can and as specific as I can at the same time. One of the unnamed sources from previous editions, David actually named the source and said, I now have permission to mention this person. And while I'm talking about it, here's some other information this person shared with me. And it's really fascinating. And I also found it interesting that there were people who we now know are very key to the Beach Boys story that David did not have not even knowledge of when he wrote the first edition of the book that he did not know about these people and their part in the Beach Boys story until afterwards. I like that he acknowledges that the three different books were written at different times of his life and his career, his experience, and that he had even different, uh, I don't want to say motivations, but just kind of like a different, well, I guess maybe, you know, different MO for writing the different books, and that that has changed over the years. And he he doesn't dispose of his original book, which is probably why he didn't just do a straight rewrite. Yeah. But it's more like he wanted to present, here's this book that I did when I was in my 20s, only having lived in LA for a few years with this set of experiences, and then going on through later years and different things. Just Well, just like how Brian and the Beach Boys have gone through different experiences themselves. Of course. They weren't fully formed in 1978. (laughs) Right. I mean, there was still a lot more story that had to happen. Oh, yeah. I I don't know why I'm bringing this up now, but when you said 1978, that kind of triggered me because when I was rereading, when I was going through the photo captions, one of the captions talked about how uh, there are several Beach Boys songs in the archive that still haven't seen the light of day, such as Peggy Sue, Shorten and yeah, Red. I know, they've, like, they've <laughs> all like, come yeah, out. Yeah, well, many of them have. I mean, that, and that's what's kind of fun is of reading it now is that there are things that are mentioned that some of them happened, some of them never happened, or it's fun to kind of look back of the perspective of time and be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and something else I want to address here. Each edition of the book has a different title. The first one, The Beach Boys in the California Myth. And it starts out by saying uh, something along, well, you know, I have the freaking book right in front of me. Well, first of all, the new edition has like several introductions (laughs) that you're going to have to read before you get to the main part. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of introductions. There's like a Barry Gibb introduction. Uh, There's a (laughs) a David Leaf introduction. There's an introduction to the introduction. And oh, yeah. 
Yeah, the main text, well, it starts off, well, Jimmy Webb wrote an introduction. Yeah. And of course, the original 78 edition starts off with a quote from Jimmy Webb. But after that quote, it says, and I quote, this is the story of Brian Wilson. Mm -hmm. The first book was called The Beach Boys and the California Myth. Now, the second book was simply called The Beach Boys. And it's the same book, but just with those addenda on it. And I'm thinking the fact that it's called The Beach Boys, and then it starts off by saying, this is the story of Brian Wilson, it makes me think of what Dennis said. That Brian Wilson is is the the Beach Beach Boys. Boys. We're just I don't know if that's a fair thing that I could say. We're just his effing messengers. (laughs) But also, this is a little bit self-serving that I, I admit. The current version is called God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, so it makes it a little bit more direct as to what you're reading. The story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. I would like to think that perhaps David was listening to the podcast that begat this podcast, (laughs) Autobiography of a Schnook, because in 2019, Chapter 8, every episode of Autobiography of a Schnook, I have a music segment. That music segment for Chapter 8 was called Dick Dale, the Beach Boys, and the Sloop John B. Myth. Doesn't that sound a little bit close to Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth? No. <laughs> oh, come on. Work with me here. You're no, my wife. No, actually, I think it's more like... It's what if more... he thought, hmm, that might be a good title no, for a rewrite? No, <laughs> I think it's more like he's putting all the titles in the title. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, because he... The 1978 book was supposed to be called Brian Wilson and the California Myth, and... I guess, again, for editorial decision was to call it the Beach Boys and put the Beach Boys group photo, that wonderful, gorgeous <laughs> group photo on the cover. And uh, I guess a picture of Brian in his bathrobe <laughs> or whatever <laughs> would, that would was. sell whatever copies. But, but then again, it was, was 1978. And like you were saying, 1970, you know, mention a 1978 triggered some. It triggers me too, you know. Lot, there, it triggered was, me about captions was, in a book. What's it triggering you of, about? <laughs> like brown polyester. Oh, and brown. But there was a lot of brown. Yes, there then. was. Why was it so brown? I was only four years old, barely four years old at the time, and yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but. I was. I was like six, and there was so much brown. Yeah. Why? Yeah, and uh, speaking of California myth, uh, if you haven't read any version of David Lee's book, in the original book, he kind of explains what he's referring to as a California myth, and it's pretty predictable. Uh, we we all kind of have an understanding of what that is. In the new edition, he addresses that again, mm-hmm. but in kind of much more harsh detail, and I read the entire new portion of it all in one sitting while we were in California. Yeah. And it was just heartbreaking to read. And the thing is, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil it or get into all the details, but it is the truth. The, the California myth is absolutely true. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, read some Joan Didion and <laughs> you'll know... <laughs> She's written extensively. I mean, I don't think she actually uses the term California myth, but in her right, like she spent a lot of time writing, trying to figure out California and deal with it. (laughs) 
Yeah, and um, I think I'm going to spoil this one part, though. There's one thing that was sorely missing from that description of the California myth, that California is hella expensive. I don't know how anybody can afford to live there. Well, I don't think it always was. Well, true, I mean, true to like most. I'm sure there's rent control in some most places. places. Most places that are hella expensive now. I mean, San Francisco used to be cheap. Yeah. I mean- it's just how things have blown up in more recent years and how there's gentrification, there's people wanting to live in particular areas and the real estate market taking advantage of that or landlords charging more and more rent, figuring yeah. somebody will pay for it. Doesn't matter if it's the person who's been there for 25 years. I mean, that happens all over. I mean, all over this country, but particularly in the coasts. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, it's very, I mean, just look at, uh, well, look at where my grandmother had her house. Little mm-hmm. beach cottages on the Jersey Shore that were created back in the 1940s, meant to be for working class people who just wanted a place to get away from the cities and have a little place at the at the beach where they could lay their head at night and use the bathroom and keep their stuff. I mean, these places were very basic. I mean, you had to pay extra just to get a hot water heater. (laughs) And the going price in the late 40s was maybe two grand, which is equivalent to about 30, 35 grand today. And I mean, we're talking places that have a footprint of like a generous two-car garage, Mm -hmm. like not, not very big at all. The same place now... I mean, I follow their page on Facebook, and um, they're going for half a million dollars, these little tiny cottages. I mean, that were, again, meant to be for working class people, meant to be very simple. And now they have washer and dryers, they have central air, they have internet, television. It's like, you're down at, I could hear my grandmother say, you're at the beach, you're not supposed to be sitting in the house watching TV. (laughs) Or it's like, what do you need a washer and dryer for? There's a laundromat right up the street. <laughs> but she had a washer, dryer, and TV. <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing is, that anyway. TV was never on during the day. And she only got the washer and dryer when she was much older. And it was a lot more difficult for her to push a cart of laundry up to the laundromat. Yeah, I'm talking like families with kids. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you don't need all that modern convenience when you're at the beach. but. And even still, you could have modern convenience and still not charge $500,000 for a building the size of a two-car garage. Yeah, probably fit in our apartment that's pretty not, easily. <laughs> that's not even like somebody's primary residence. Yeah. So I'm just saying that this kind of thing has blown up all over, and yeah. it's really kind of sad. Yeah. Anyway, back to uh, David Leaf, the uh, God only knows the Beach Boys and the California myth. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. From California to New Jersey and uh, (laughs) good Lord. But what do you get with this book? Of course, you get the 78 version, you get the addenda that came with the 85 version, and you get the brand new chapters for what happened since, including the first tour. He talks a lot about the TNT uh, tribute to Brian Wilson mm-hmm. from 2001. And the Queen's Jubilee he talks in about the, 2002. Uh, yep. And clarifies a couple of stories about that that are still funny. Uh, 
he talks about, oh, you, yeah, you, you got to read about Brian's bachelor party from when he married Melinda. <laughs> That's great. It's a great story. And um, he gets a little bit personal as to what he's been up to in recent years, including, like we mentioned before, his, how he's at, he teaches at UCLA. How long has he been doing that? Did he, do you remember I, if he I said that? I don't remember. I don't remember when he said he stood. I think I it was to... like within the last 10, 15 years. That's what I'm thinking. But, I mean, it made sense to mention these things because I think all of it kind of grew out of the work he's done with Brian and yeah. the associations that he's had that the work he's done with Brian over the years was able to get him other gigs and also did tremendously um, built up his resume. Yeah. So I think um, that work has led to many other opportunities that he may not have had otherwise. So I think he has a lot of gratitude and acknowledgement of that yeah and he's got his hand in the Bee Gees camp and the beatles camp too. in fact <laughs> we another recent book that we got was uh, bruce spicer's book about rubber soul and revolver we actually got ours before it was released because we're special oh, well because we went to the fest for <laughs> yeah. beatles fans where he was selling them in advance and i posted a picture of it i said i'm reading this now david leaf commented and said good book of course he's going to say it's a good book. He wrote an article in it. So <laughs> Well, it's also it's also too. I mean, he doesn't really come right out and say this explicitly, but when you take the whole book, it's almost like kind of a good example of how like where you can go if you have chutzpah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. if you have the guts to take a risk and put yourself out there and if you have a dream, it's like, well, just go for broke, like move to LA or, yeah, right. or it's like, it kind of makes me think of um, Terry Hemmert on WXRT, yes. who from day one was a massive Beatles fan. And the Beatles came about when she was in high school. And then she went off to college around, I think like 1966 or 67. And she wanted to go into radio mainly because she wanted to meet the Beatles. Yep. And I mean, at that time, there were no women on the air. It yeah, was very it was rare, rare to ever hear a woman's voice on the radio unless it was like a radio play or something. Or, a ra or, you know. or maybe, maybe some station like WGN might have had like Lee some, Phillip, like example. a society, like a women's hour yeah. or society notes, like this party and that party and whatever. How many women but, were spinning discs? No, yeah, you know? women were not music disc jockeys, except the only thing I could think of is maybe in the South on, um, primarily black stations sure you may have had there may have been some women there but not on big city mainstream stations and um like women of any color but she went to college and studied communications and just kept pushing at it until it happened and not saying it was easy but it was i mean she did it Yep, she's and, been on WXRT since the 70s. And she got to meet Paul McCartney. And Ringo. <laughs> and Ringo. Yeah, Ringo hugged her twice. The germaphobe hugged her twice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So it just Beatles envy. It just kind of <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's there's a lot of luck in there too, but not saying like, well, this is how I did it. You can do it too. Yeah. But it's just more an example of hey, if you put yourself out there 
And if you have a drive and a focus and yeah, a lot of luck, I mean, you never know where you're going to end up. And I think that's that's a good message to put out to yeah, people. Yeah, and he's clearly grateful for it too. Yeah. Really, my recommendation, get this book, seriously. Oh, yeah. It's... And if you have not read the previous editions, start from the very beginning. And I'm going to tell you, when I, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. When I got to the new part of the book, I read it all in one sitting. It was a serious, for me, it was a massive page turner. I was like, now, I need to know more. Now, one thing I will say. Hey, come have dinner. <laughs> no, I'm, let me finish reading. <laughs> I, one thing I will say, and this is, this is not a criticism of this book. It's more just kind of a comment, really more of the subject that I'm not saying this is the best book ever about Brian. I'm not saying this is the only book you should ever have about Brian, because I feel like that's just not possible. Oh, yeah. That there's more to Brian that meets than meets the eye. Oh. And I think also, I mean, David Leaf does provide a lot of perspective on this, that there's a lot about Brian that's very difficult. Yeah. And I don't even know, even somebody like David Leaf, who has extensively traveled with Brian, who knows Brian both professionally and socially, who Brian has called him for advice and needing support and things like that. There's probably a lot about Brian that David will never know. So it's not like this is the end-all be-all book of Brian. I think it's more like if you want to know Brian, you have to refer to a variety of sources and this is yeah. one of them yeah i mean seriously like you, think about everything out there that's on brian you got this book you have the peter carlin book you mm -hmm. have brian's book becoming the beach boys by jim murphy has a lot of insight to brian Wait, by brian's book you mean i am brian wilson right the one he right? actually the one had he actually wrote <laughs> yeah. uh you have love and mercy that great the, biopic you've got the documentaries yep. you've got uh David Leaf's Beautiful Dreamer. You've got I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. Mm -hmm. Long Promised Road. Yes. They address Brian in so many different angles, so many different mm -hmm. perspectives, but I don't think that all those together are going to scratch the surface. Yeah. What is the one thing that will tell you everything you need to know about Brian? The music. The music. I mean, Brian himself has said that the yes. music will tell you everything you need to know. And I'm not necessarily talking about lyrics. Listen to the instrumental tracks, since that's what always comes first. Brian will lay down instrumental tracks long before there are lyrics, long before he even knows what the lyrics would be or what the subject is. Like, he has his feels, he has his pet sounds. Yeah, any new fans listening? Yeah, before you ask Brian, he writes the music first, yeah. okay? Stop asking him that. And there's a reason why you look at many, many, you know, there's very few Brian Wilson songs that have lyrics where he is the sole composer credited. Yeah. Sole composer, if it's an instrumental, fine. But for songs with lyrics, he very rarely writes his own lyrics. Right. He'll have an idea, but then Mike Love, Van Dyke Parks, Tony Asher, Gary Usher, Roger Christian. Andy Paley, Andy Joe Paley, Thomas. Tandon Almer. Uh, <laughs> Jack, uh, Jack Riley, Jack Ray Riley. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
there's a vast number of people that he has brought into the fold. Including Carol King. Yep. Good. Oh, wait, no, no, Brian. I was thinking she co-wrote Good Kind of... No, Brian wrote that by himself. Oh, okay. He had Carol King put a vocal on it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But... Yeah, Sorry I mean, he's he probably is the first to admit that he's not much of a lyricist. So till are, I die, however, ooh. Well, yeah, and that's an exception right there, which the lyrics really are pretty intense, but also very simple. Yeah, he's able to carry out a feeling in very few words. And who talks about uh, how we need to rejoice in that Brian could do such a thing? David Leaf. I don't think it's in the book, but it's definitely in the 1993 Good Vibrations liner notes. Well, also Marilyn. That too. Because yeah, in, um, in one of the documentaries, I think in uh, either Endless Harmony or, Harmony or I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. Oh yeah, Endless Harmony is another documentary that tells a yeah. lot about Brian. But yep. in one of those where Marilyn just marvels because she knew the despair he was feeling at that particular time. Yeah. And the fact that he could take that and turn that into music just floors her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you want to know about Brian, you got to listen to the music because he's already told you everything he needs to know. And of course, read the books too. Oh, yeah. I'm saying that's what Brian has said. Exactly. But it's even still, you're going to get far more about his emotions and his state of whatever from the music. But the books and the documentaries is basically everybody else trying to make sense of him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But hey, if you want to make sense of him, or at least try to make sense of him in some way, there's Omnibus Press with uh, David Leaf's God Only Knows, the Beach Boys, and the... No, God Only Knows, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. Wow. Uh, it can't even fit on the spine. You'll notice that it's (laughs) word-wrapped there in smaller type, too. We'll link a way you can get it in the show notes. Uh, hopefully, you can. Fi- there, are, there are ways that you can actually get a little, skim a little piece of the the uh, sale from it. We'll see if we can do that for us to fund the podcast. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. No, no. Seriously, there is a way to do that oh, with really? Amazon. Yep. Oh, yep. Hmm. Yeah, just nobody ever puts it in the words that I just did. Oh, okay. More like we might get a little kickback if you buy from the link here. I'm just gonna say, hey, yeah, we're gonna skim some of the price off it because hey, I'm I'm no bullshitter. <laughs> anyway, is, uh, is that all we want to say about uh, this book um, at this point? Or I think so. Okay. I'm sure I'll think of like 20 yeah. things as soon as we're done. Well, then, hey, we'll addend on episode 14, which we've discussed a possible topic for that. Should we, we have? disclose it? We have. I think we did. <laughs> I, I would like to know what that topic yeah. is. Examining... 1965. Oh, that okay. Studio, that topic. So, I didn't yeah. know that was what you so, wanted to do next. So that might that might be next. We might change our minds, but that's definitely something we're going to talk about in the future. In addition to the Beach Boys cookbook, of course. Yeah, and the sale on sailor set. Oh yeah, definitely. Because gonna... that that's going to be. Well, we we won't have that until November. Until late November, yeah. Unless, unless of course, it's leaked in advance. Or unless somebody wants to send us a review copy. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, anyway, uh, I, I can't wait to hear... It's not one of my favorite unreleased songs, but I can't wait to hear Carry Me Home in non-bootleg quality. Mm. <laughs> but anyway, hey, it's John. And Lisa. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Tune X Podcast. 
Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and just about every other provider out there. If TuneX isn't on your favorite provider, please let us know. You can email us at tunexpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the show notes, is tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B, then the number four, then I-T. Feel free to connect with us on social media. TuneX is on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, both under the handle of TuneX Podcast. Our opening and closing theme, Melody 10, was written and performed by Scattered Frog. We'll see you next time, friends. Until then, don't don't back back down down from from that that wave. wave.